Amen. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the English Reformation um, that sort of went on during Luther and Calvin's Reformation um, and <coughs> sorry, continued on. Uh, and then we're going to focus on probably a lot of our time on a man named John Knox. Um, I know you, probably many of you are familiar with him, le probably less so than Luther and Calvin, um, but as equally an uh, important figure when we think about church history, especially when we think about American church history, um, John Knox was from, well, England, Scotland, and I'm not going to try to go through and explain the whole relationship between England and Scotland. It's just, uh, my wife could tell you better. She likes to watch The Crown when I'm at home, and, and uh, it's her guilty pleasure. I come home, and she's watching The Crown. But uh, anyways, but he was a Scottish reformer um, and had ties to, obviously, England. But we're going to talk about the man, and really a great guy, a fiery dude. Uh, he was not particularly well-liked. A lot of the reformers weren't. Um, even within reform circles, Knox had his, his run-ins. Uh, and he was a fiery guy. And just to show you how fiery he was, I actually, there's a picture of him that I found online. Rare to find pictures of reformers. But I'll show you what he looked like, and I'll give you a sense. If it comes on. Uh, that's John Knox. The great Scottish reformer. So, yeah. he was always standing in front of an explosion. I, you know, kind of incredible. But it's more incredible is the picture quality from 15th century. No, this is not. This is uh, Mel Gibson. But thinking about great Scottish reformers and fiery men, it's not a bad picture to represent him if he's ever portrayed in a movie. So, anyways, that's all. That's the only reason I wheeled the TV out. So. Um, <laughs> Aspirations of making a PowerPoint didn't get there. Uh, so, to sort of, before we jump into um, John Knox and the Reformation in England, um, you know, sort of setting the, the stage and the backdrop to, to what it was like here. Now, very similar to everywhere, everywhere else in Europe, okay? A spiritually dead time in the church. Roman Catholicism was... Again, the established religion of, of England. And um, it was a time, like we've been hearing about all summer, um, of no one reading the Word of God, uh, preaching the Word was not, was not heard of, um, moral, immoral behavior among the, the clergy, the priests, and the Pope. <clears throat> um, in, in England at this time, a cardinal named David Beaton, this is just some examples of things we heard. He, again, was a, a priest. He was the archbishop. He legitimately fathered 14 children, and everyone knew it. And this was the guy that was leading the church in this time. Uh, there's also accounts during this time. A lot of the priests thought the New Testament was a, a recent work by Martin Luther. And so, you know, these are the types of men that were leading in the church all throughout Europe, and especially in England and Scotland. Um, and so the English Reformation begins and is something that the work of others had brought it about and led to. Uh, remember we talked a number, month or so ago about John Wycliffe. He was in the 14th century. He had immense influence. He was English. And 
we remember we talked about the movement, the Lollards, right? The mumbling preachers. That movement was still going on, although a lot of them had been put to death and are still put to death during this time. The Lollard movement is still going on, so there's sort of the underpinnings of Reformation are going on. But really, and which is true of all of all of Europe and the world at this point, the Reformation gained steam when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and that lit it off, and it rippled all throughout Europe. And so we see this going on in England and Scotland as well. One of the other important things that happened, important men in this, in this time, was William Tyndale. Now, do you know that name? William Tyndale. What was he known for? Translating the Bible. Translating uh, the Bible in English. Now, John Wycliffe had done that, right? In the 14th century, a few hundred, 150 years earlier. Um, but was, what was unique about William Tyndale's now... Obviously, a hundred plus years is kind of a long time. You know, we get translations, what, every, every year now? <laughs> every two years? Uh, but it was a long time to up, update the, the English Bible. But Tyndale's translation was unique in that it was really written for the common man. One of the, one of the things that Tyndale did was, and what he was known to have said in starting out his translation of the Bible, he said, you know, I want... I want the boy behind the plow to know more about the Word of God than the Pope. And he was right. And that was the effect of his translation. But that's what he wanted to do. Um, and, you know, I'll walk a little bit more about his translation. One of the interesting things, too, he had an epilogue in there where he explained and wrote out Luther's theology of justification and really wrote against the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church in this, and this was printed with the Bible, and it was the epilogue to his, his work when it first came out. And so this is what was getting distributed along and around England, English speakers. And so it had a heavily influence on spreading Luther, uh, Luther's theology of faith and of undermining the, the traditional Catholic teachings of the church. Um, English language at this time was very primitive and rough, and laughable. It was not a serious language. It was not spoken by those who were well-to-do, those who were educated. Remember, Latin was the, was the language, was the currency of the, the educated. You know, in any institution, college, Latin was, was spoken. Um, books were in Latin. And again, up until this time, the most, for the most part, the Bible was. And so, you know, when you think about the English language and what Tyndale wrote in, it would kind of be like, I know some of you went to, just went to West Virginia, right? It would be like taking a guy who grew up and lived in West Virginia and dropping him in, you know, Washington, D.C. with the elites and educated of the world. You know, that was kind of the way the English language was viewed. And so it was actually, Tyndale's work was pretty laughable. You know, we don't think of it that way because the whole world speaks English today and we have modern English in part because of Tyndale. And there's even some who have said, without Tyndale, you don't have Shakespeare. You know, the, the work he did in forming this language. <clears throat> um, but Tyndale coined words in English such as intercession, atonement, Passover, mercy seat, scapegoat. He was known for taking a, a very literal translation of the Hebrew text um, and creating it in the English language. And so he came up with these words. You know, we know these words today. Tyndale's the one that really first started using them and coined them. 
Um, again, 85 so years later, the King James Version Bible would come, and that was an important Bible. About three quarters of it was Tyndale, you know? So really, Tyndale is the author, is the translator of the modern English Bible, and we have him to, to thank for that. And I want to just stop here and say, we've seen this with Wycliffe, with Luther, Calvin, Knox, the English Reformation. What primed and pumped the whole thing? The Word of God. The Word of God in, in the tongue of the people. The Word of God made accessible. Men that said, no, the people have to have the Word. The people have to read the Word and know it better than the Pope. Know it as much and read it as much as the pastors of the church. And so, you know, we stop here and we, we think about these great acts of faith and the impact these men had in the world. We have to always remember they started with the Word of God. I mean, they started and ended there, but they loved the Word. You know, and I, we think about our time and our day and our lives. Do we want to have great impact? Do we want to have reforms? It's simply trusting in the Word of God, simply relying on it. You know, and we should be grateful we don't have to go through this process of translating. And, you know, remember, these people didn't have the text of Scripture to read, and we do. And so we always have to remember this, the great acts of faith, the great reforms of the church are done from our personal desire and love for the Word of God. So we have to be committed to this. <clears throat> um, some of the uh, political events that led and brought about the Scottish Reformation and this change during this time, um, King Henry VIII, uh, one of the things that led to the split of English, England from the rule of the Holy Roman Empire, he is that he, sorry, requested an annulment from his marriage in 1527 from Pope Clement VI, and he refused. And so this was, this was the, the dividing point. This was the fork in the road. The English Parliament, after this point, passes laws abolishing uh, papal authority in England, and they declare King Henry the head of the church. Um, and again, much persecution happens during this time. It's simply the fact they break away from the Roman Catholic Church doesn't stop it. Uh, following him, King Edwards um, VI becomes king. Now, he becomes king at the age, I believe it was five or six years old. Now, this was important in terms of the Reformation because King Henry, sorry, King Edward uh, was Scottish. And so there's this, again, I... I'm not going to pretend to be the expert. There's this Scottish, England. He's Scottish. He becomes king in England, and it sort of unifies the country, and it's a big deal for Knox, who's Scottish, and for much of the Protestant Christians. They have now a Scottish king, and he was also the first king. He was raised Protestant. So he's very uh, accepting and willing uh, to see Protestantism grow in the country and Roman Catholicism subside. And so he becomes king, but he dies at 15, so it's, it's not very long-lasted. Um, after him, another uh, queen, Lady Jane Grey, was queen for nine days. They had sought to make it so that Roman Catholicism could, would not come back into the country by inserting another queen in there who they knew would be in favor of the Protestants, but after nine days, she was removed and then put to death, beheaded. Um, 
and she seems like, I, I read it, I don't have it here, I read a short account of her going to be beheaded, and it seemed like she really loved the Lord. Um, so kind of unfortunate for her. Mary Tudor becomes queen after her. Now, have you heard of Mary, Bloody Mary? This is Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor. She was brought in, and she is committed to seeing Roman Catholicism back in England, back in Scotland, and so she makes life miserable for the Protestants. She puts to death um, well over 300 um, people, pastors. Uh, they're put on trial, beheaded for speaking heresies against the church. Um, during this time, uh, one of the influential writers was John Fox. You may have heard of his books, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. He writes during this period a, a, a history of the church and a history of persecution. How many of you have read, or at least part of Fox's Book of Martyrs? A lot of incredible accounts in there. Um, and he is also a modern historian during this time in Scotland. He writes about the ways that Queen Mary puts to death uh, other Protestant Christians. And so, um, again, in this book was wildly popular in Scotland and in England during this time and had a big influence on turning the tide of the people against the nobility. And we'll see that coming up here with Knox. Uh, he really led a, a, a religious <laughs> movement of reforms and it had political, it, it was so mixed with the politicalness of, of, the, of the kingdom. And we'll see that coming on. But this book was important um, as we now look and turn into the life of John Knox. So John Knox was an incredible man. You know, there's a lot of ways we could think of him and describe him. I think about warrior, <laughs> stubborn, um, a man who was not, was unflinching, even in matters of threats and, and death. He one of the, there's an account of a man shortly after his death standing at his grave, and he says, here lies a man who neither flattered nor feared any flesh. And this was true of Knox. He was a real man, and he did great things for God, and he did not live in fear. And it's incredible. Now, there's some things that people in his day, people now reflecting on his life, are a little uneasy about Knox, uh, he was <laughs> brazen at, in points. He was, it was messy at other points. And yet, I believe we see a man that was a true prophet of God. And I, I say prophet because, you know, Jerem, or, um, Knox would often recite or he would awful, often reference the prophets of the Old Testament when he would think about his work as a reformer in Scotland. And he really did champion the ways they sought to reform Israel. He really did look at a Jeremiah, and even, you know, you go to the New Testament, he looked at a John Baptist. He was like a John Baptist, you know, a man not esteemed by any, a man that was out in the wilderness, a man that was on his own, a man that had a lot of enemies. He was not liked, and yet he was a, really, a real man who stood for the Word of God. He was a formidable preacher in a united Scotland. And so a little bit about his life. He was born 15 miles outside of Edinburgh in Scotland, around 15, uh, 14. And just to give you a sense of, of scale, Edinburgh at that point had a population of about 15,000. London was 60,000. 
and Paris was 200,000 at the time. So a, a fairly small, um, <clears throat> excuse me, fairly small city. He was four, about four, when Luther posted the 95 Theses. Um, and really, like I said, the, the area he came from was a small, Scotland was, I mean, it was podunk. It was, it was off the beaten path. It was not the center for really anything important. This is where he grew up. Um, and really, his humble background gave him a, an incredible ability to communicate um, and to preach to ordinary people. This is one of Knox's uh, strong suits. Graduates from St. Andrew's University in 1536, and he becomes a priest. Now, a few years later, in 1543, this is when Knox becomes a Christian. Not a lot known about his conversion, um, but we know from this period that Knox gives his life to the Lord here and begins to uh, seek to follow God. One of the men early on that Knox is heavily influenced by is a guy named George um, Weishart, or Wishart, I'm not sure exactly how you say it. Um, and Knox becomes, again, this is sort of his nature, he becomes sort of a bodyguard for this guy. He actually carries around a two-handed sword with him wherever he goes, you know. And so he follows this guy. Uh, Wishart is eventually condemned as a heretic. Uh, he's hanged. He's burned um, by Cardinal Beaton, who I mentioned earlier uh, was the cardinal with 14 illegitimate children as a, a priest. And so he's hung and he's burned by him. And then shortly after, now this was something Knox uh, spoke of disapprovingly, shortly after, uh, it seems like Weishart's followers uh, went back and assassinated Beaton and just two months later in sort of retaliation to killing uh, Weishart. And so a lot of crazy things going on. This, what follows from this, it, it, it enrages the nobles. And so the, this group of Protestants take refuge in a castle, uh, St. Andrew's Castle, which is then besieged by France. And so Knox is in this castle besieged at this time um, not able to go anywhere, and so they still hold church services during this period, and he's in there, and this is when he's becoming alive in the Lord, and the group in there appoints Knox as what we'd say the clergy of the castle, as, as the preacher, um, and this was actually something that Knox did not want. Um, this was something he, that he refused but as he was debating his call, one of the things that happened during the service, um, the dean of the church was preaching one Sunday morning, defending Catholicism, um, speaking about the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and the need for reforms, but, you know, going on about it. And during the service, Knox stands up and he interrupts and he says, the Roman Catholic Church is not the bride of Christ, it's a harlot. <laughs> Middle of the service... Well, again, a little chaos ensues. There's an uproar. Well, the people say, okay, defend yourself. And <laughs> explain yourself and defend this position. And so next week, he gives a sermon. He preaches on it. And after that, he becomes their pastor. And so this is how Knox is sort of thrusted into this role. And he becomes... 
Um, he preaches there. This is where he preaches his first sermons. And this is where we really see his theology about the Catholic Church, about um, the civil authorities come into play. And so that's how he begins. The castle falls. He's taken into um, captivity with, in France. Comes a galley slaves, a galley slave, one of those ships where they, you know, when the wind goes out, they have the oars and they can, they can row to keep it going. That's what he was doing for about 19 months um, of his life here. He's released. He comes back to England, um, and he, again, continues preaching, uh, going around different churches in England, seeking to establish um, reform theology. Um, but again, he's forced to leave. I mentioned earlier, when Mary Tudor becomes queen, he has to flee. Um, she's beginning to put people to death. He understands what's going on, so he leaves, and during this time, he moves around a little bit, but he pastors uh, English churches in Frankfurt, Germany, and also in Geneva at this time. This is where we see uh, Knox and Calvin crossing over here. So Knox is greatly influenced by Calvin. Um, Knox's theology is very much alike Calvin's. Uh, one of the, this was by a secular historian, this, you know, c comparing and contrasting Knox with Calvin. He said, Knox is Calvin with the sword. And there's some truth to that. Uh, and that, got, that gets into a whole stem of the different ideas and thoughts and thinking they had about how, do, how does the church mingle, cooperate with the civil government and civil authority. This is really where Knox and Calvin were in basically complete disagreement. Um, so one of the helpful ways to think about this is if you've ever heard of Knox, or not Knox, Calvin Luther, uh, referred to as magisterial reformers. Have you heard of that term? Basically all it means is that, uh, well, in, in their view, the magistrate had a right and authority to within the church, just as the church could rely on the authority of the magistrates to enforce discipline, suppress, suppress heresy, and maintain order. They were very willing to have the civil authorities um, invested, involved in the church, so long as they weren't contrary to the laws of God, but they did not view it as a bad thing, as something that they had to work against. Um, they actually viewed it as a way to cooperate and make, have the gospel message go further. Um, and so Knox and David talked about the Anabaptists, they were very... Uh, they were different on this view. Uh, they would be what we'd call radical reformers. They, they would say, we want nothing to do with the government. The state should have no, should tell the church, should not tell the church anything. There shouldn't be any crossover. And so they were very different from this. They had a hardline stance on it. And so where Calvin, we'd say, would merely, you know, he would permit disobedience to ungodly rulers or immoral law. Calvin would definitely say and does say that, of course, we don't obey wicked mandates, wicked laws. But what Knox would say and what the radical reformers would say is, and they would more champion armed rebellion against it. They would say, it's not enough just to not obey, but you should seek to overthrow. You should seek to topple. And so that's kind of the difference in the views and when Knox was there with Calvin, 
you know, they would talk about this. Calvin would be, Knox would ask him if it's ever permissible to resist by force uh, a monarch who was idolatrous. And this was something that, and in and, and Knox's view, when he says idolatrous, what he means is the Roman Catholic Church. When he says idolatrous, he means Mary Tudor's pushing of Catholicism. Knox was, I mean, all the reformers was, Knox was big on resisting and fighting the idolatrousness of the Catholic Church. You know, he would say things like, you know, in their mass and worship, holding up the wafer. You know, it's like, it's like they're worshiping a piece of bread, a, a wafer. I mean, he would everywhere throughout the service, throughout the mass, throughout Catholic theology, he was so struck by the worship of icons, uh, the veneration of the saints, and this is what drove Knox. And so, <clears throat> in his view, this had to be opposed. And not just opposed, but it had to be toppled and overthrown. Calvin sternly disagreed with him. Um, Calvin was not in line with him here. Uh, now, I want to say here, too, I think it's something important to note. Knox was, for the most part, on his own. He did not have really any support from civil leaders, civil government. If you remember, Luther had Frederick III, right? Frederick the Elector. Luther was protected by him. They had, of course, <laughs> they were up against a lot, but they did have support. Calvin did have support in Geneva. Now, he had battles, but there was also support. Knox did not. Um, Knox was really on an island when it came to civil authority, when it came to um, reforms in the country he was in. And so Knox was thoroughly convinced that Scotland, like the Old Testament Israel, had to be reformed in all parts. He had a view that the primary role of a, of a leader of a country was to protect the worship and the faith of the church. He, one of the things, one of the things that really guided Knox's thinking is the in, immutability of God. The fact that God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so Knox, in reading the Old Testament and seeing how God would reform the nation of Israel said, well, this has to be how God will reform Scotland. And this was the one-to-one -one correlation he made. He would say, if God raised up a Jehu, then God will raise a Jehu up now. You know, and these are, in these areas, you know, you read Knox, you love him for it. You know, his taking the word of God literally and saying, you know, we should see God act with power. We should see God rise up and topple evil men. It's one of the things, you know, reading Knox, I love about him, is he was not too worried about being winsome or being light. He just read the word of God and he said, okay, yeah, this is who God is. God hates the wicked. God hates the wicked. And God raises up men to slay idolatrous rulers. So Knox, this was the way he preached. This is the way he taught. He demanded that God's law be upheld in Scotland. He sought to see it. Um, he sought to see the law of God work with power. And so one of the ways <laughs> Knox 
seeks to be winsome as he writes this piece. He writes this uh, <laughs> document, and it's titled, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Montrous Regiment of Women. <laughs> Regiment being the government. <laughs> this was directed at Mary Tudor. Now, Knox, through this time, uh, is watching and observing her put to death pastors, um, promote idolatrous worship of God. And so he writes this, directed right at her, and in it he concludes uh, that no woman could be a legitimate ruler, especially those who prosecuted, per, sorry, persecuted Protestants. Um, further, he writes in it, the regiment of a woman is a thing most odious in the presence of God, the rule of woman. They must refuse to be her officers because she is a traitoress. So he's, what he's talking about here is those who are under the rule. This is, where Cal, this is where Knox is starting to go down the route of saying it's not enough just to live under and to personally just not follow in the trajectory of a country, but you must rise up and oppose. They must refuse to be her officers because she is a traitoress, a rebel against God. And finally, they must study to repress her inordinate pride and tyranny to the utmost of their power. Okay, so this is what Knox is writing. This is what he and Calvin butted heads on. Calvin disapproved of this. In fact, Calvin banned the circulation of this in Geneva. <clears throat> A few of the other things Knox writes in this piece, he says, faithful Christians must work to remove from honor and authority that monster in nature. If any Christian supporter, other Christians ought to execute against them the sentence of death. So he's saying, if there's Christians that support this queen, other Christians should put them to death. Also says, to not revolt against an idolatrous ruler was plain rebellion against God. And so Knox's view, he said, you have to rebel. You have to oppose. You have to work against. He didn't just permit revolt. He actually required it to be a faithful Christian. Again, this, you know, it's a lot that could be said here. I think one of the things, again, knowing the time he lived in, the wickedness that he dealt with, I'm sympathetic to his strong writing on this. Um, and his zealousness and desire to see God's word honored. You know, with Knox, this is truly where it flowed from. And so, one of the uh, few weeks after this publication, Mary Tudor is, dies, and Elizabeth I ascends to the throne, and she was Protestant. She was uh, not Roman Catholic like Mary Tudor. However, this piece being published weeks prior, she hated Knox for it and absolutely despised him. And so that had certain ramification. Knox himself does admit, he says, this is him talking about releasing this, he says, my first blast hath blown from me all my friends in England. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, he recognized it, and it really lost a lot of people, but I would say it gained him a lot of 
the strength and the right people. It one knocks many followers and many who wanted to see the word of God go with power. Again, it's a messy guy. You know, this isn't a clean cut reformer. Now, really, none of them were. I think if anyone embodies what Luther said, you know, sin boldly, it was Knox. I think there were some mistakes in what he did. But he made the mistakes in the right direction. He was on the right side. And we can, part of that testament is to the effects we see from him today. And so Knox wins people. Though messy, he's on the right side. <clears throat> um, some of the other things, um, you know, I'm thinking about the reforms of, of Knox and what he led. Uh, the reforms in worship were very similar to what we've, saw, what we've seen with um, Calvin last week. Um, again, his view of the Latin Mass was complete idolatry. And so they, they removed most every component from it. They really did follow a similar structure to uh, the worship in Geneva that we walked through last week. And one of the, again, core commitments of Knox was for worship, for the people of God gathering together to be a grave and serious time in the church and to reflect the early church. And so this is what we see going on. One of the things... I'll just throw this out there. I was reading, I thought it was quite humorous, but one of the things they had was they called a stool of repentance. Anyone guess what that was? It was a stool in front of the church that had anyone under church discipline would have to sit in, and they would determine, you know, maybe one Sunday as everyone came in, you'd have to sit out there. Uh, but they did this for everyone. Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy. There was a, a pretty high up in the church who had to sit out there. And I think they, I can't remember how long, it was a couple day, day or two or something, just so that everyone would see him. And it was a part of his readmittance back into the church. So some ideas for youth group here. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was Knox, Stool of Repentance. Um, I want to get 10 minutes left here. I want to jump to sort of his lasting impact, how we should view and think of him. Um, he does die in 1572. Um, but the work goes on, and really the reforms that he began, we see carry on even today with great power, maybe even in ways that we don't see the work that Calvin did with, with Geneva. Um, Knox spearheaded in Scotland the rejection of Roman authority without leaving the church subject to a monarch. Now, that's an important part to note there. He spearheaded leaving Catholicism, but he did not lead them into the church now being under the head of a state. Now, that's what happens in England, and it's true to this day, right? The Anglican church is the head of state. <laughs> the, the king is over the Anglican church. And so Knox in Scotland does not go that way, and that's, from what I understand, true to this day. Um, but he leads them out of Roman Catholicism, but not into a different form. Um, Knox is really one of the more influential leaders, spiritual fathers we have for uh, Presbyterian church government. So 
How many of you know we're a Presbyterian church? Okay, how many of you know what that means? AJ? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a board of elders, right? There's deacons. Um, it's a form of church government. And again, this is something begun in Knox's time. Actually, one of the men that followed him, Andrew Melville, uh, would, is probably more uh, associated with being the architect of it, although he was you know, right in line with Knox on this. And so he does a lot of the work of bringing about um, this form of structure in the church that you know, we are and we have today. Um, and, you know, one of the other things, too, I think, you know, when we think about his lasting impact of, of Scotland and, and England, but then really what is the continuation of the English empire the, is America, right? And so much of the American Revolution is influenced by Presbyterian thought and theology. Um, a lot of the early American fathers were Presbyterian. A lot of them were heavily influenced by the Scottish Reformation, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the theology or the things we read about Knox and his views of civil authority, you know, what was the American Revolution? It's not enough just to submit, you have to revolt. And so these things are tied. And I think one of the things for us, you know, turning now to think about our lives, you look at Knox living in a day of, of persecution and of hardship, you know, and there was, uh, there's a lot of accounts of Christians who lived under Hitler would often read Knox, would often, um, would often turn to him. You know, there's this idea of living in hard times and looking at a man that lived in a hard time himself and really did great things for God. I think in times of peace, it's tempting to look at a guy like Knox and think he was a, a bit extreme and a bit of a a bit over the top. And yet when you consider his, his life and you consider the climate around him, we should understand that he was leading for God. And at points, yes, it was messy. At points, it was not well calculated, but it was for the glory of God. You know, when I think about him, I think about our day, and I think, would we rather have the zeal of Knox over, you know, the tact and the winsomeness of our evangelical leaders. I say, yeah, give me Knox. Give me a guy that's going to throw a haymaker. It's going to have some collateral damage, but he's doing it for God. As I was preparing for this, I was thinking about our last, uh, our last meeting for Presbytery before we left the PCA as a church. David had, uh, I was the clerk that week. David said I was a great writer, and so I got to do <laughs> You hadn't said that before then, David. <laughs> anyway, so, but one of the things that was, again, I, some of you probably aren't aware of this. Some of you are. But, again, one of the, the things we were committed to as a church was standing for the Word of God, wanting to see uh, wickedness, Rule taken out of the leadership in the PCA and 
and we had some documents presented there to get voted on. And I remember, I don't remember the word, but there was a word that was repeated by the moderator. The, the motion was shot down before it ever got discussed or it ever came for a vote. And I believe the word was intemperate. Um, was that it? I remember that word sticking in my mind because it was said so often. It, you know, it's, it, it lacked tact. It was, it was not winsome. It was unruly. You know, it, it was a little too judgmental. You know, that kind of. And, you know, I remember that striking me as a, you know, well, not a pastor then, but, and, and thinking about, you know, it's better to have men that are willing to take chances, willing to make mistakes, willing to make judgments, and they could be wrong, but willing to make judgments for God than to be so concerned with how we're perceived or what people will think of us. You know, and I think there, for me at least, it solidified the need, we, the real need to leave that denomination. It really is the battle can never be had if you're in a group like that. And that's true for us, too. We can never get to the point where we're worried about our, our look, our image, our sensibilities, how people perceive us, it has to be the Word of God. You'll get accused of being intemperate as a Christian. If you're standing and doing things in faith, you're going to be accused of being unkind, unloving. And I know many of you have had this. But this was Knox. This should be us. We should have zeal for the Word of God. We should be like the prophets who Knox admired. He loved Jeremiah. He loved the prophets. He said, these guys did great things. They were zealous for God. Um, that's about all I have. Next week, we're gonna, it's going to be our last week, and then Truth in Life begins. I believe it's, is that September 10th? That just sounds way too... Okay, so next week, it'll be my last week teaching. I guess there's a gap week then. I'm not sure what's going on, but that will be the last week of church history. At least I'm up here. We're going to talk about the Puritans. Um, but I'm excited for Truth and Life. I've been able to see some of the material uh, doing a, a Bible survey. Two years, right? Yes. A two-year um, rotation, and so I'm really excited uh, for that, and I hope you are too. I hope you make plans on attending those. And I'll go ahead and pray, and then you'll be dismissed.